we're in the middle of our Evergreen series, and uh, this is the second of three weeks, and uh, we're talking about how God is evergreen and how he never changes. He's always giving. He's always good. Uh, last week, Chris said he was going to talk about money, and then he didn't. He <laughs> I'm just kidding. He did talk about money, but he talked about it in a way that you normally probably wouldn't hear at church. And he talked about how unless we are rooted in Jesus, we won't see growth and we won't see fruit in our lives and um, how we're made in the image of Christ. And if Christ is evergreen and always giving, then so are we. And um, he, he talked about how being re- rooted in Christ is just the most important thing and um, how having a foundation in Jesus frees us up to give um, generously. And so um, as I was going this week, I heard something that struck me, and I heard um, that the September 11th terrorist attack, way back in 2001, it took three years to clean up that rubble and the mess, and then uh, there was some financial holdups and things like this. And then finally in 2006, they started working on rebuilding the towers. But instead of building up, in 2006, they built down. They dug down seven stories and started on the foundation. And for three years, they dug down and they worked below the surface. And so for three years, you couldn't even see anything from street level. And then finally, you after three whole years, they eventually started working above the surface. And they did that because they knew that they wanted, they had the end in mind. They wanted this to be something that would last, that would change the skyline of New York forever. And these, these towers, the, the new World Trade Center, is uh, one of the most structurally sound buildings ever. And so you could run a truck bomb into the base of the tower and it would stand. And they built it in a way that was so structurally sound because they knew they had the end in mind. And they, they spent three years digging down and building that foundation. And I'm just, it's so clear to me that if we don't have our foundation in Jesus, like Chris talked about, then we're not going to last. We're not going to stand. And so, Chris, thank you for taking us there last week. Uh, I was reading even this week, and uh, Colossians 2.7 says, Let your roots grow deep in him, and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught. Um, And I'm so thankful to be a part of a church that lives that out, a part of a church that is deeply rooted in Jesus. And so, again, Chris, thanks for taking us there last week, and thanks for talking about money. Appreciate that. Uh, Let me pray. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would speak through me today. I pray that not a single word that comes from my mouth isn't from you and that you would move me out of the way so that you would be glorified. I am, like I said, I'm thankful to be part of a church that desires to be deeply rooted in you so that the lives of our, our family and our friends and our city is changed because of the way we love you. And I'm thankful uh, that our love is simply a response from the way that you love us. Um, We welcome you into this place today. Thank you for being with us. Amen. So my mom used to babysit. She she ran a home daycare out of her house. And so at any given point, 
throughout the week, we would have like 10 extra kids in our house. And she did this probably from the time I was five until I was 12 or like when I was real young. And we would have, we would take kids to school, we would drop them off, we would pick them up. I would be at school all day, so I'd miss out on all the fun that the little kids had during the day, like fruit snacks and push-ups and all that kind of stuff. But I, I got to come home, and it was nice because I always had someone to play with. But it was also nice because I was the oldest, and I kind of controlled things. I was like this dictator of all the little babysitting kids. And thinking back, I was like, maybe I was a little mean and maybe a little manipulative and a dictator. Uh, but, uh, like, I remember, I remember kids would always want to play video games with me. I'd be playing the PlayStation, and I would just want to play one player. So, and I didn't want to let them play. So I would literally unplug a controller and tell them they're playing with me, when in reality, they're just playing on an unplugged controller. And then I also remember, I have a ton of stories about these babysitting kids, but uh, another one is we had this big circle drive. And so the circle drive was um, uh, kind of my bicycle track. I would just ride around it and, and race around it, me and my little brother. And at the end of the circle drive, into the backyard, there was about a foot drop off. And so we would always ramp our bikes off that or just kind of ride them off into the backyard, into the grass. And that was kind of the end, the finish line of our track. And then eventually I started getting a little more daring and I built your basic ramp that every kid knows how to make with a brick and a piece of plywood. And we started ramping off that, so a foot drop off plus the ramp. And we could get some pretty decent um, length on our jumps and pretty decent height. I got pretty good at it. And so one day I was kind of like, I wonder how many babysitting kids I could jump over on my bike. So somehow I convinced them to lay in order behind this ramp and... I jumped over nine babysitting kids and set some kind of a record. And so I, I just was, I don't know how I did it. I was just older than them, I guess, and they listened to everything I said. But I, I kind of had control over them. And every dictator has their own right-hand man. And my right-hand man was uh, uh, my friend Allison Ward. And Allison, my mom, babysat like the entire time that she babysat. So from the time Allison was probably three or four until she was old enough to, to watch herself and didn't need a babysitter anymore. And she was just a year or two younger than me. And um, so she was younger than me, but older than the rest of the kids. And so she kind of became a really good friend of mine, but my right-hand man. And um, like her and I developed a friendship outside of just being babysat at our house, and she became one of my best friends growing up. Um, and one thing I remember about Allison is she had a blanket. And from the time she was a baby until the time she was probably 10 years old, she took this blanket, she called it Binky, she took Binky everywhere with her. And if any of you have kids who have a blanket, you know those things get nasty. And she would literally take it anywhere she went, she would suck on it so it smelled horrible, she would, I mean, for eight or ten years, whatever it was, she carried this everywhere. So it literally was like a torn-up rag. I remember it, it was like threads by the time it was done from all the wash cycles and all the um, just stuff it had been through. And it was so gross 
Nobody wanted to touch it. I didn't even want to sit like in the back seat of the car with her because it was that disgusting. Um, it didn't matter how many times we washed it, it was gross. But Allison loved this thing, like absolutely loved it. She would take it anywhere. I remember one time we were on a trip to St. Louis for a gymnastics tournament or something. Uh, she did gymnastics. And on the way home from St. Louis, we were probably halfway home, and she realized she forgot it at the hotel. And so we had to turn around from being an hour and a half, almost halfway home, back to the hotel, and then back. And I'm thinking in my head, like, this thing is not worth this kind of trouble. It, it, you could buy 10 binkies for, uh, 10 brand new binkies for the price of gas that we just spent going back. But here's the thing. Some things are loved because they're valuable. You think about a diamond ring or a nice car or something like that. Some things are loved because they're valuable. Other things are valuable because they're loved. And this blanket was worth nothing. It was, like I said, literally a dirty old rag torn up to everyone else. But to Allison, it had immense value. It had so much value that we had to drive all the way back to St. Louis to get it because she loved it so much. And God does that for us. We bring no value on our own outside of the fact that God loves us. We get 100% of our value from the fact that God loves us. And he loves us more than we can possibly imagine. And we, it's because of God's love that we have any value at all. And as we celebrate Christmas, what we're celebrating is God showing us how much he loved us. What we're celebrating is the greatest love story of all time. And there's, there's tons of good love stories in the world. There's The Notebook and Titanic and A Walk to Remember, and, which, by the way, A Walk to Remember is what I'm going to call my Chinese food restaurant, W-O-K, A Walk to Remember. But great love stories that pale in comparison to the Bible. So the Bible, you open up, and on page one, everything is perfect. Page one of the Bible, everything is perfect. Man in perfect communion with God. God and man together, and everything is perfect. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, everything is exactly how it was intended to be. There's no sin, there's no death, there's no cancer. No war, no fighting, no lies, perfection, and life exactly as it was intended to be. And that's page one. And then we turn to page two, and that's how quickly everything changes. We mess it up. Sin enters the equation, and we think that we know better than God knows, and we decide to take our own path, and we decide to do things our own way, and we turn our backs on God, and suddenly sin enters the picture. And the worst news is not just that sin exists now, but the worst news is that sin means separation from God. And what was together and perfect at first, now there's this grand canyon-sized gap between us and God. And we're on one side, and God is on the other, and we're no longer with God because sin is separating us from him. And there's nothing that we can do about it. And that's page two. And then you turn to page three and page four and five and six and seven, all the way through the end of the Bible. And the reason it's the greatest love story of all time is because all those pages 
is God doing everything in his power to win us back? And for generation after generation after generation, man continues to be separated from God, and they try and try and try to fix things, and no matter how hard they try, that separation remains. And we come to know that that separation is clearly a bad thing, and it causes death, and it causes destruction, and it causes the chaos that exists within our planet, and yet there's nothing we can do about it. And for thousands of years, man and God are apart, and they're separated, and there's no hope. But then we get to Matthew 1, 23, and it says this, something happens. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Suddenly, God is with us again. After generations and generations of separation, Things change on Christmas night in a little town of Bethlehem when a tiny little baby is born. And once again, God is with us. And it's not because anything we did right. It's not because he had to do it. It's only because he loves us so much, more than we could possibly imagine. And after years and years and years and years of being apart, God is with us again in the form of a child, in the form of Jesus. Thousands of years of no hope, and then suddenly there's hope. Revelation 21.3 says, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain. And so, after all this bad news, after all this separation, after perfection initially, and then years and years and years of separation because of what we did, because of sin, God comes, and he comes in as a baby, and he changes everything on Christmas night. After years and years of years of no hope, suddenly there's hope. And we sang a couple minutes ago that beautiful song, Oh Holy Night, which I love that song. That's probably my favorite Christmas carol. And band, you did an excellent job. Thank you. Um, And I hear that song, and I sing it probably every year at Christmas ten times. I hear it on the radio, or I hear it at church, or we, we sing it, or whatever. I hear it over and over and over. And this year, for whatever reason the lyrics hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, I've never been hit before by lyrics. And the lyrics that hit me, and even this morning, there were other lyrics that hit me. The lyrics in that song are absolutely beautiful. And that sounds super sappy of me. But, uh, like, that is a beautiful, beautiful song. But the lyrics that hit me this time around um, were a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. A thrill of hope. The weary weary world rejoices. Can you imagine the thrill after years and years and years of waiting for something for so long, then all of a sudden it's here. And it's not just something. Like when Lauren was pregnant for nine months, that was a long wait. And I would guess it was longer for, for Lauren, but it was long for me. And... 
like when Jet came, when Jet came, it was a thrill. I will never, ever in a million years forget that night that we kind of, we started feeling like, I was at a soccer game. I was playing soccer with Holly and Blake and some of the people in here, and I was in Morton, and I get home, and I, I see a text, and Laura's like, I, I think it's happening, basically. And I get excited, so I drive home, and it turns out there's more waiting that happens after that, but like waiting and waiting and waiting nine months for Jet to be born, and then he's here, and the thrill of holding your child for the first time is an experience that I will never, ever forget. And I'm the type of person that I get excited, like when we're having company over, I like look out the window and peep through the blinds, and I'm like, are they here yet? Like, I'm super excited about that, and Lauren would probably make fun of me about that. But like, I just get excited when things are, are coming. But can you imagine the thrill of thousands and thousands of years of waiting for a Savior, thousands of years of separation, and then the Savior is born. There's hope, a thrill of hope. That kind of thrill on that night would be unlike anything I could possibly imagine. The weary world rejoices. God loved us so much that he steps down from heaven to be with us. And after years and years of no hope, the weary world rejoices, weary from waiting and waiting and waiting with no hope in sight. And suddenly, God is born as Jesus, and the weary world rejoices. That song is just beautiful to me. And there are multiple accounts of Christmas night in the Bible. It's such a cool story. And one thing we do is we read that uh, Christmas story out of the Bible every Christmas, and I recommend you guys do it too. It's If you haven't read the biblical account of the Christmas story, I, I recommend it. It's just every time I read it, there's something new that pops up or there's something exciting that I learn. And um, it's the one with the wise men and the star and the manger and there's no room in the inn and Mary and Joseph and then all that. And I would read it to you today, but for the sake of time, I'm actually going to tell you the Christmas story in one sentence. And I'm convinced that the Christmas story in one sentence is in John 1.14. And it says this. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Or the message version says, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. God entering our world for the first time. God is with us. Emmanuel, God with us. So I have a one-year-old named Jet who's walking now, and he's climbing all over everything, and he's uh, a lot of fun, but he's also getting in the Christmas tree, and now the presents are under the tree, and he's interested in those, and he's interested in the glass bulbs on the tree, and he's just a little trickier. Um, but he, he just wants to play all the time. And when I get home from work, a lot of times, all I want to do is sit on the couch and turn on the TV and kick up my legs and put my nose in my phone or my computer and relax. And Jet doesn't really let me do that. He likes to play. And he has toys everywhere. And he's up on the couch. And if I try even for a second to get my laptop out, he's banging on it and stuff like that. You can't get work done with a one-year-old. But 
it didn't take me long to realize that when I'm on the couch, I can't really show him how much I love him. And so I get down on the ground on my hands and knees, and I have no hair on my knees anymore because we have hardwood floors, and all the crawling around I do, but I get down on the floor and I play with him on his level. And that's when we connect. That's how he knows he is loved by his father, is when I get off the couch and get on his level and I enter his world and play with him. And that's what Jesus did for us. He got down off of his throne, he stepped out of heaven, and he entered our world for us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus gave up everything for us. He gave up everything he had and entered a sin-filled world as a man simply because he loved us so, so, so much. He loved you so much. He would have done it for one of us, but he did it for all of us. Isaiah 9-6 says this, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. Jesus did this for us. He did it for you. It doesn't matter what your past looks like. God came for you. Your addiction, your problems, your mess, your sin, your past, your marriage, your criminal record, no matter how many times you have turned your back on God, none of that stopped him from coming for you. And that, to me, is something to celebrate. That's why we celebrate Christmas, and we do celebrate Christmas. We have a month worth of, uh, now probably longer than a month worth, of celebration with lights and trees and gifts and stockings and everything else that Christmas brings. And what we are celebrating for that month is worth celebrating for a month. It's worth celebrating every day for the entire year. And we, we should celebrate that every day for the entire year. We should wake up every single morning and say, God, thank you for Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you for coming into our world and entering on our behalf. And what we're celebrating is the hope of a restored relationship between God and man. Life back to how it was meant to be. Back to page one of the Bible where there's not this huge, huge chasm between us and God, but life where we can have a daily relationship with Jesus because of that. We no longer have to rely on ourselves to be good enough because when Jesus came and died for our sins, our sins died right along with him. And we don't have to clean ourselves up anymore because Jesus did the work for us. I don't know about you, but have you ever tried to clean yourself up? Have you ever tried to say, I'm, I'm not going to do that again? Because I have often, and it doesn't work. It doesn't last long. I've said I'm not going to get angry anymore. I said I'm not going to yell anymore. I'm not going to swear anymore. I'm not going to drink anymore. I'm not going to whatever it is. I'm not going to steal anymore. Whatever it is, we've said that. And it doesn't last when we do it on our own power. Um, I know in our house, Jet goes to bed at like 7.30. And when we put him to bed, we pick up his toys and we do his dishes and we straighten up the pillows on the couch and we wipe his high chair down and we put away his books and we put away his blocks and we do everything 
that makes our house kind of look normal again. Everything that he got out that day, we put back. And as I'm doing that, I know within seconds of him waking up the next morning, it's all going to be out again. And the same is true when I try to clean up the messes in my own life under my own power. I know that it's only going to last so long. And it's, it's not going to work unless I look to Jesus for that help. And that is why we celebrate. That's why Jesus came, so that we don't have to do that anymore. Now that God, with us, now that God is with us, we can put our faith in him and trust that no matter what, we don't have to clean up these messes anymore. Not on our own. There's hope of actual change happening in our lives. The change that we hope for, the change that we pray for, that is coming because God came, because God is now with us. And since God is with us, he, he doesn't change. He doesn't lie. He keeps those promises. God is evergreen. And so if he's with us now, he'll be with us forever. <coughs> and when we try to do things on our own, we fail. And Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. And when we try to follow our, our own heart, we're going to be deceived. When we follow our own, our own heart, we're essentially saying that there was no need for God to come to earth at all. There's no need for Emmanuel, God with us. There's no need for Jesus as Savior. There's no need for that. But that's not true. And Paul, Paul says it best, uh, and I am Paul. Every time I read Paul in, in the New Testament, I'm like, yep, that's me. He says this, So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself. For, for what I want to do is, for I want to do right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. And it goes on to say, I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I want to do what is, I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. And every time I read that, A, I'm confused because he used confusing language, but B, I'm like, yep, that's me. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I want to do what is right, but I don't. I, wanted, I don't want to do things that are wrong, but I do. And it's because so often I, I try to rely on myself to do it, and no matter what, sin exists within me that will inevitably come out. If we follow our heart, we let our emotions become our God. And if my emotions become my God, then I serve the most fickle God in the history of the universe. Because my emotions are very fickle and very unpredictable, and they lead me astray constantly. And that's why God came. God came because I don't have a chance on my own. If a ticket into heaven is Jesus plus me doing something, I'm in trouble. If it's Jesus plus me being a perfect husband, if it's Jesus plus me being a perfect father, if it's Jesus plus me reading my Bible daily, if it's Jesus plus me loving my neighbor or plus me not sinning or plus anything else, I'm going to be left on the outside. And luckily it's not. It's Jesus alone. He did it all. And we did nothing. In fact, actually in the story of the gospel, we brought the sin. That's the only thing we do in the story of the gospel. We bring the sin. 
and God does the rest. But now that God came, and now that man and God are reunited and no longer have to be separated, now that God is with us, we have a hope and a future and a purpose for living. God didn't just save us from something. He didn't just save us from our sin, but he saved us to something and for something. And with Emmanuel, God with us now, things change on Christmas night. We celebrate God with us now, and the game is changed. On Christmas night 2,000 years ago, everything changed. And I don't know about you, but you might be thinking, Ryan, nothing has changed. Nothing in my life has changed. I'm still alone. God isn't with me. I'm still a mess. I still sin. There's still pain. I have no joy. How can you possibly say that God is with me when you look at my life and see what's going on? When you see the mess that exists within my life, you would not be saying God is with me. But God is evergreen, and God doesn't change, and he is always with you. And God isn't going anywhere. God is always with you. So maybe the question isn't whether God is with you, but maybe the question is, are you with God? Two or three years ago, Lauren and I had the opportunity to go to a restaurant in Chicago called The Girl and the Goat. And The Girl and the Goat is a five-star restaurant, very, very, um, I don't know, desirable restaurant, whatever you want to call it. People line up. You have to have reservations six months in advance to go to this restaurant. And they have you know, really expensive wine. They have unique dishes, one of the highest restaurants, uh, highest rated restaurants in the whole city of Chicago. And Lauren and I were at a conference two or three years ago, and we got to go because a friend of ours who's a foodie was like, we, he knew we were going to be going, so he got us reservations. And it, it was cool. We ate some very unique, relatively expensive food and all that. And I heard a story about this restaurant. And so behind the restaurant, there's an alley. And the owner of the restaurant, at the end of the night, you know, he would stay late and he would clean up and he would do the dishes and they would clean up all the tables. They would bus everything. All the workers would leave and the owner would be there kind of fixing things up and straightening it up before um, he shut up the, the doors for the night. And he would always take out the garbage, last thing on his way out, out the back door into the alley and he would throw it into the dumpster. And he noticed there was a homeless guy back there. And every night, the homeless guy would go into the dumpster and he would open up the trash bag and he would start to eat some of the food from the restaurant that were just kind of trash and leftovers from everyone else. And eventually, after a couple weeks, the owner talked to the guy, the homeless guy, and said, hey, he got to know his name and he kind of learned part of his story and things like that. And he, he finally said, hey, why don't you come in and I will have my staff serve you a five-course meal. You can have the finest wine. You can order anything you want on the menu, any appetizer, any dessert, anything you want on the menu, and I'm going to give it to you for free. And the homeless guy sat there, and he thought for a minute. And then eventually he said, no thanks. I'm okay eating from the trash. I'm okay eating and doing what I've been doing for a long time. I'm okay with that. And the, the restaurant owner was a little confused, but he went back inside. And the 
the next night. He took out the garbage, and the homeless guy jumps in the dumpster and starts eating from the trash again. And we do this with God all the time. God is offering us the most perfect gift we could ever ask for, and so often we look at him and we say, no thanks. I'm okay with what I have. I'm going to go my own route. I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to pass up the life that you have for me because I think I know better. How long are we going to keep eating from the trash? How long are we going to keep eating this garbage when God is offering us the perfect gift of his love and redemption and restoration? And here's the thing. That gift demands a response from us. Just like if I offered you a Christmas present, at some point, if you wanted it, you would have to receive it. Have you received the gift that God is offering you yet? This perfect gift of life how it was meant to be. Life on page one of the Bible. This beautiful gift of love and redemption and restoration. Have you received that gift? Revelation 3.20 says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and nay with me. Have you opened the door of your heart to Jesus yet? Have you let him in? In every area of your life, have you let Jesus in? Are there areas in your own life where you're telling God no? This area is mine. I'm not, I'm not letting you have it. You can't have it. Are you still settling for the dumpster when God is offering you life as it was meant to be lived. Open the door of your heart and receive this gift. I did 12 years ago, and it was the greatest gift that I could have ever imagined. It changed everything for me. God is promising you he is with you. Are you with him? Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for changing the game. Thank you for doing whatever it took to pursue us. And no matter how many times we turn our back on you, you continue to pursue us page after page after page, day after day after day. You chase us down because you love us more than anything. And you promise to be with us. And we're so, so, so grateful for that. Thank you for the way that you love us. Thank you for the way that you change the game on Christmas night 2,000 years ago. We love you, and we pray this in your name. Amen.